For almost a thousand years, this building has loomed over London, a grim spectre of mortar and stone that was the greatest fear of any adversary to the crown. Once you pass beyond those doors and gate, and the deep boom echoed as it shut behind you, your life was forfeit. In all likelihood, you were already dead the second you crossed the threshold, and now, you just wait for it to happen. Would it come at the hands of the Keep's torturers, or at the blade of an executioner? Or would starvation, dehydration, or sickness take you? With such terrifying conditions in life, how many linger in death? Prisoners still then, now, and forever in the horrifying Tower of London. Welcome back, gentle ghosts and ghouls, to Charnel FM's broadcast. You all have my thanks for tuning in, and I hope each and every one of you are having a pleasant day, however miserable or macabre the circumstances may be. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, here at Channel FM we try to bring you everything and anything aimed at raising the hairs on the back of your neck. True crime, unsolved mysteries, strange occurrences, ghost and folk tales, creepy cryptids, and more. Today, I'll be speaking to you of one of the most infamous and supposedly most haunted buildings in England. In this long and blood-soaked history, it's most known for being used as a terrible prison, but it's also seen use as an armory, barracks, menagerie, mint, and royal residence. With over 400 violent and agonizing deaths, tales of inhumane torture, and a history rife with political backstabbing and scheming, it's probably safe to assume that there are indeed some strange things happening within. It's most infamous for the barbaric and savage torture that was inflicted upon the prisoners kept there, the brutal executions that so often ended the enemies of the regime, and the ghosts of the many that met their end within the cold stone walls. Spirits of the departed who died before their time, so present that even the guards that walk the empty halls speak of being attacked by invisible, spectral things. I speak to you of the Tower of London, the final destination for many poor, unfortunate souls. I'll begin, as always, with a little history. As I'm sure you can imagine, the history of such an important building that's been in use for almost a thousand years could fill a textbook or two, so I'll try to keep this short and sweet. William the Conqueror, the first Norman King of England, had a great stone tower built in the centre of his keep in 1070, the foundation of what would become the castle and fortress complex as we know it today. As the first Norman King, he feared that the conquered populace would rebel and try to overthrow him, and so he built an easily defensible location where he and his regime could remain. The public supposedly hated it. To them, it was a symbol of oppression, inflicted upon them by their new ruling elite. In the early 1200s, the keep was expanded in a number of ways. Curtain defensive walls were added and towers were erected along them, and the moat was also expanded. It became known as the White Tower in 1240 when Henry III had it whitewashed. As a royal castle, the tower was used by the ruling monarch to imprison many people over the years, but they were usually high-status individuals and kept for short periods of time. It's true that some tales of the tower's horrors are inflated or fictitious, but there's no denying the fact that horrendous, appalling, and brutal things were inflicted upon those who were kept prisoner within it. Most prisoners never left the tower alive, after all. 
During the Tudor period, the Tower became the most important state prison in the country. The people deemed the most dangerous to the crown were forcibly imprisoned there and were often tortured and executed, which has given the tower its infamous image that lasts to this day. Anne Boleyn is one of the most famous ladies to meet such a fate while imprisoned in the tower, and her story is a sad and grim one. She was the second wife of King Henry VIII, a man who was what we'd now call a love rat, a womanizer. He was obsessed with securing his legacy by having a male child, a quest that saw him take no less than six wives. Unfortunately for Anne Boleyn, all her living children were daughters, much to Henry's ire. In 1533, she and the king feasted in the lavish and royal apartments of the tower the night before her coronation as queen. But three years later, she was imprisoned in those same rooms for the charges of adultery, treason, and incest. Historians are divided as to whether or not she actually committed these crimes, but from my own research, it seems the majority favour the idea that most, if not all the charges, were fabricated. We know that Henry's quest for a son led him to divorce his first wife, going against the church and popularity with the people to do so. He's definitely the sort who would have arranged a conspiracy to remove a wife in favour of another. In Tudor law, the defence was assumed guilty until proven innocent, the opposite to the way we do things nowadays. She and her brother, George Boleyn, were found guilty. She was sentenced by the court to be burnt alive, while he would be hung, drawn, and quartered. Henry, in his infinite mercy, sarcasm clear, had their punishments both commuted to a beheading instead. For those that don't know, being hung, drawn, and quartered was a particularly grotesque punishment, as the name implies. It was often reserved for the worst of the worst criminals, those accused of treason, for example. First, you would be hanged by a rope until you were on the brink of death, but pulled free from it just before you actually perished. Then, before the witnesses, you would be cruelly and brutally emasculated, disemboweled, beheaded, and then quartered by being chopped into pieces. While Anne may have been spared that particular end, she was still to be beheaded. Understandably, her time in the tower was one of deep sadness and sorrow, and she would write many letters to her friends and allies during her internment. Despite the pressure and looming execution, Anne maintained her innocence and refused to name anyone to blame for the conspiracies. It's very possible that she was trying to save her remaining family and friends from a similar fate by not implicating the king. On the 19th of May, 1953, Anne was led down from the tower and onto the tower green where she knelt before the executioner, a swordsman from Calais who was known for his skill in beheading with a sword. Her final words were a simple prayer repeated, Jesus receive my soul, O Lord God have pity on my soul, until the sword silenced her forever. A single cut severed her head from her neck and she fell to the floor, dead. Her headless body was buried quickly and carelessly beneath the tower chapel, and for most of us, that would be where our story would end. Anne Boleyn, however, quickly became one of the most famous ghosts to haunt the tower. Staff, tourists, and visitors have all claimed to have seen her wandering the green where she was executed, the chapel where she was buried, and the halls and rooms of the tower. Many have seen her roam the corridors of the fortress, 
an eerie spectre with the palest skin and clothes of the deepest crimson that end at the headless stump of her neck. She shambles along the corridors, creeping in search of her lost and severed head. Some have seen her with her head tucked under her arm, the shocking and terrifying expression of fear and death still present as she cradles the grisly token. Two more famous and eternal residents of the tower are actually the young princes Edward V and Richard, aged only 12 and 9 at the time of their disappearance. As the only sons of the late King Edward IV, they were sent to the tower by their power-hungry uncle who wished to hold an iron grip on his position as the regent. It was supposedly to prepare the young would-be king for his coronation, but their uncle had them declared illegitimate and seized the throne for himself. In 1483, the two were seen less and less by the public, and when they were, they always seemed ill-cared for and frightened. A doctor who attended them reported that they were like, and I quote, a victim prepared for sacrifice. Eventually, the two disappeared entirely and were never seen again. There were always rumours of their murder, that their uncle had them killed in order to solidify his own power, but nothing was concrete until 1674, almost 200 years later. Workmen who were remodelling the tower dug a small wooden box out of the foundations of a stone staircase, a box that contained the skeletal remains of two young boys. Their bodies were draped in decomposed rags, but also the velvet of nobility. The bones were removed, and examinations concluded that the bodies were very likely those of the poor princes. To this day, it's not known for certain exactly what happened to the princes, but the fact that Richard banished them to the tower and held them under tight guard while he became king suggests that he's responsible, whether it be deliberately, accidentally, or through simple negligence. However it came to be, like Anne Boleyn, they're said to haunt the grounds in which they came to meet their end. The two are said to wander the tower still in their nightshirts, frightened and clutching hands as they shuffle through their labyrinthian tomb of wood and stone. Visitors often report the sound of children sobbing, an eerie sound that creeps through the empty halls at night, and the sight of them playing on the ramparts. One of the more blood-curdling remnants of the past comes from Guy Fawkes, a man who gained infamy during the gunpowder plot. It was a failed plot organised by English Catholics to assassinate King James I. They amassed large barrels of explosive gunpowder beneath the Houses of Parliament in London, with the intent to detonate it and murder the King on November the 5th, a night that would later be celebrated in England as Bonfire Night. Ultimately, the plot was betrayed, failed, and the gunpowder was discovered. Fawkes refused to name his co-conspirators, and he was sent to the tower to be tortured. He was strapped to a device known as the Rack, which resembles a table or ladder with a roller and winch at either end. His ankles and wrists were shackled and attached to the rollers, and over a long period of time, the winches were slowly turned. With a sickening pop, joints would be wrenched free and dislocated. Shoulders, knees, hips, elbows, all of them. Further strain could tear ligaments, muscle and cartilage. If pulled too far, muscles would lose the ability to contract, rendering them useless. It's a terrible suffering, 
one that was inflicted on Fawkes for hours at a time, day after day. Eventually, once they believed they'd learnt everything they could from Fawkes, the King's men dragged him to the old palace yard opposite Westminster, the very building he'd attempted to destroy in the gunpowder plot, where he was executed for his crimes. He was to be hung, drawn, and quartered, but due to his weakness from his torture, he broke his neck immediately as he fell on the noose. But not one to sweat the details, they did it to him anyways, and his remains were distributed to the four corners of the kingdom as a warning to any would-be traitors. It's said that you can still hear his screams that pierce the quiet night, that they echo inside the empty keep and startle all who hear them the rattle of chains as the winch is turned, and the repulsive popping as joints are ripped from sockets. Can you imagine it, dear listener? The sweep of your flashlight illuminates the darkness that surrounds you in the thousand-year-old tower as you plod on your patrol route. Within the walls is a claustrophobic environment, given it was designed as a well-defensible fortress. The keep that surrounds you is almost tomb-like, similar to a catacomb. The only sounds that you hear are the distant noises of the bustling city, the sporadic crackle of your security radio, and the dull steps of your feet upon the cold, remorseless stone. This job has always been a mixed bag. On the one hand, it's easy to be a security guard for a fortress. It's true that there are plenty of valuables within to steal, but it's also a fortress. It's designed to keep people out, or trapped inside. On the other hand, it's always been a little peculiar. Despite the relative risk-free location you're working in, it's, it's always felt uncomfortable in these halls. Your co-workers don't talk about it, worried that it might lead to official caution or ridicule, but you know that they see and hear things. They'll be jovial as they set off on patrol, laughing and joking, but something's changed when they return. Their expression is more somber, their shoulders sloop, and all merriment has gone. They're quiet as they sit, staring at the monitors for the cameras. You don't get much out of them beyond a short one-word greeting before they settle. They finish their shift, gather their things, and then leave as quietly as they returned. While you've not seen anything yourself, it's still weighed on your mind now and then as you walk the corridors. It's quiet, but something bristles the hair on the back of your neck. You come to a halt, straining to find something on the edge of your hearing, but nothing. Just before you abandon the effort, there it is. The clank of metal against itself, the shake of a chain, and then the faintest, quietest noise of sobbing in the distance. You listen for a few seconds before you stride off, searching for it. The only people allowed within the tower at this time is security, like yourself, so you move to see who it is. You call out to them, asking who might be there, but it leads you down the empty halls until you reach an open room, and then it stops. The silence of the keep is deafening now, the ringing noise of quiet and nothing. You peer around the room, your flashlight shining into each and every corner, but there's nobody there. The stone room is vacant, hollow, and empty. As you strain to listen once more, a shrill cry chills the blood in your veins immediately. The high-pitched scream of tortured agony, ear-splitting and dreadful sends you fleeing from the room in sheer and absolute terror. You return to the security room just as your co-workers before you. Pale-faced, shoulders slumped, you greet your companion with a single word and stare glassy-eyed at the security monitors. 
You spend the hours dwelling on just what it was you heard, and wondering if the others have seen or heard anything similar. This place is haunted, you think. You had always suspected it, but now you know for certain that the tower is plagued by the dead and the damned, the lingering souls who cannot pass on. Reports like this one are common, and can get rather… peculiar. One guard at the tower claimed that he'd been attacked by a ghost from the menagerie, that the spirit of a bear had roared and rushed him. In fear and natural response, he attempted to bayonet the creature in a desperate attempt to save himself, but it disappeared after passing through him. When others rushed to the scene after hearing the clamour, they found him crazed and raving mad. He was carried to his quarters where he died only two days later. There's also an entity known only as the Nameless Thing, though it's more a sound than a physical apparition. Wardens of the Tower report the strange and primal feeling of being watched and being followed while out on their rounds. They brush this feeling aside, knowing that the chances of it being genuine are slim to nothing, but as they carry on with their patrol, the feeling only worsens. Eventually, footsteps begin walking the tower with them, only a few feet behind them at all times, the gentle pitter-patter of leather on stone. It begins slowly at first, quiet, until the entity grows closer, close enough that you can hear the creature's ragged breath and feel the hot, musty air on the back of your neck. When you turn sharply, casting your flashlight behind you, there's… nobody there. The tower is a beautiful looking complex that hides an inhuman and violent history. It's likely that this building will be forever associated with the cruelties that occurred there, especially as such a history isn't as old as one might initially think. The last person to be executed at the tower was one Josef Jacobs, a German spy who was captured during the Second World War in 1941. He was executed by firing squad on the tower's miniature rifle range. Today, the tower still stands as one of England's most popular tourist attractions. Like you, dear listener, these people are fascinated by its rich and gruesome history. It's still used to house the monarch's crown jewels and coronation items and regalia, so you can imagine how secure such a fortress must be. I've seen them myself, actually. It's peculiar to wander through the tower, to be shown the various devices of claustrophobic torture and death and then to enter the vault where such priceless and gorgeous pieces of jewellery and tailoring are shown as works of art. Those two often go hand in hand, it seems. Blood and gold. These ghosts and horrors are only a drop in the bucket of everything that's occurred at the Tower of London. To cover it all would take many, many hours, but hopefully I've whet your appetite and entertained you just enough that you enjoyed your time listening and that you might even be interested to look into it yourself. As always, if you have anything you'd like to say about today's topic, feel free to reach out to me. Before we slither onto today's Cryptid of the Week, we'll give our special shoutouts for this episode. To everyone enjoying this broadcast over a delicious meal, to everyone feeling a little disheartened at the way the world is turning, and to everyone named Sophia, you all have our special shoutout for today. With that, we move on to today's Cryptid of the Week, and one that you may have already heard about in one form or another. A four-legged omen of death, and one that's been actively reported to viciously attack people in the dead of night. Today, our Cryptid of the Week is the Sinister Black Shuck. 
There's a very famous tale of Black Shuck that I'll recount for you all now, as I believe it perfectly sums up the creature far better than anything I could write. On the 4th of August, 1577, a large congregation gathered at St. Mary's Church in Bungie for one of their many daily prayers. It was a dark and stormy night, with heavy rain battering against the church walls and the whistle of the wind as it whipped through the tower. The priests led the townsfolk in prayer, hoping to ease some of the fears of the tempest outside. Hands clasped, heads bowed down, eyes shut, the people listened intently on the matters of God, our souls, and the devil. All of them were completely unaware that the monster from their books had come to meet them, and that the devil was waiting just outside. With a deafening crash and the booming clap of thunder, the great wooden doors of the church were thrown back to screams and shouts of the townsfolk within. In the doorway, illuminated by the lightning, stood a great and terrible beast. A giant shaggy black dog the size of a horse, its salivating maw sported rows of sharp and blood-caked teeth, and in the centre of its head was a singular cyclopean burning red eye. The terrified townsfolk stood from their pews to flee, but the monster lunged too quickly. It dashed from pew to pew, savagely biting and mauling the horrified churchgoers, wringing their necks until dozens lay dead on the floor of the church. As quickly as it had come, the monster vanished, leaving only the corpses of its victims and the screams of those who were left alive. Black Shuck is one of the many ghostly dogs that are said to roam the British Isles. Some are benevolent, acting as guardians and protectors, while others, like Black Shuck, are menacing and murderous. By those that witnessed the massacre in the church, he was said to be the devil in the likeness of a dog, a hellish monster of a frightening size. His entrance is often accompanied by a bizarre electrical storm, and at other churches in England, the storm was strong enough to cause a steeple to collapse through the roof of the building. I suppose you can't say that the devil doesn't know how to make an entrance. A church in Suffolk bears the marks of an attack by Black Shuck to this day. Within the church are the jagged, burnt claw marks of the hellhound as it scratched at the door, trying to force its way into the building to slay those who were praying within. It's unsure if this is indeed a cryptid, or merely a creature of folklore and myth. Signs of large creatures are common on the Isles, as I mentioned during the first episode with the Beast of Bodmin Moor. There are plenty of reports of livestock being savaged in the night, of large dogs stalking individuals out on walks or drives, but not much in the way of attacking any churches anymore. It could be a case of mistaken identity, of course, as many reports of these large animals tend to be, but you'd think the burning red cyclops dog would be something you'd know on sight, right? From the reports, it seems as if the black shark has something against Christian folk, or churches in general. As such, it could merely be a tool of the church to keep people praying and in the pews, that pagan beasts will come to eat you if you don't stay on the path of the righteous. Black Shuck has been referenced in all sorts of media over the years, though one of the most famous is arguably its portrayal in the Harry Potter books. In the books, it's known as the Grim, but while it lacks the singular eye, it keeps many of the other criteria of the beast. The large size, the menacing attitude, the raw power, and that it is an omen of death. But what do you think, dear listener? Is this also a case of mistaken identity, or does the devil indeed wander the British Isles atop four shaggy paws with a singular red eye? Have you had a run-in with anything we've mentioned today? Do you have something you want me to cover in the broadcast? 
A particular cryptid investigated or a story read on the air? If so, reach out to me at charnelfm at gmail.com, or you can go to the show's Twitter account, which is also at charnelfm. As always, I thank you for listening. Do please like, rate, and share this with your friends if you think it's something they'd enjoy. And I apologise for any stuffiness in this episode. My seasonal allergies are destroying me. For now, however, that brings us to the end of our episode and the point of the broadcast where I bid you all adieu with a frightening fact. It's a macabre question, but have you ever had the strange and eerie feeling that you're about to die? Usually we'd brush that sort of thing off as a momentary feeling of sadness or depression, but if you've had a blood transfusion recently, you might want to seek medical attention. As it turns out, one of the known and documented symptoms of having a mismatched blood type given during a transfusion is a sense of impending doom. You may also feel a burning sensation at the sight of transfusion, with chills, fever, aches, and pains. Isn't the body strange? It's the one thing we own from the day we are born to the day we die, and yet there's a lot about it that we simply can't explain. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, dear listener. This is Charnel FM, signing off. The songs used in this episode are titled Morning Song, Echoes of Time V2, and Mist on the Moor. They are made by Kevin MacLeod and are licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. His website is ecompetech.com, and he makes brilliant music. Give him a click and a listen.